Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, folks, this is Kevin. On today's episode of Risk, you'll hear Leo Allen. And she was like, no, it's totally fine to pray for someone's death. (laughs) And I was like, that's the fucking best $150 I've ever spent. That and more. But before that, you know, getting mailing and shipping done can seem like a no-win situation. Going to the post office takes time. Leasing a postage meter is expensive. With Stamps.com, you buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package right from your desk using your own computer and printer. You can even get special postage discounts you can't find at the post office. Plus, Stamps.com is more powerful than a postage meter at a fraction of the cost. You can save up to 80% compared to a postage meter, and you'll avoid those time-consuming trips to the post office. We use Stamps.com at Risk in the Story Studio, and we love it. And right now, you can use our promo code RISK for this special offer. It's a no-risk trial, plus a $110 bonus offer that includes a digital scale and up to $55 free postage. So don't wait. Go to Stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in RISK. That's Stamps.com. Enter Risk. Also, you might recall Chris Castiglione was a member of the Risk team for a long time. He created our site at risk-show.com. And I mentioned that Chris went on to create an online class called One Month Rails. One Month Rails is a series of bite-sized video lessons and step-by-step tutorials that teach anyone, even a total beginner, how to build your first web app in just 30 days. If you get stuck, there's always a real person there to help you. In the One Month Rails class, you'll learn Ruby on Rails, HTML, CSS, Bootstrap, GitHub, and more. So what are you waiting for? Enroll now at onemonth.com slash risklovesyou. You'll get a one-time discount of 25% off for joining, and you'll be helping to support Risk. Again, it's One Month Rails, 30 minutes a day for 30 days, and you'll build your first web app. Now here's the show.
Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is Lucas Pern behind me now. And this is our annual tradition. This episode takes us back to San Francisco Sketch Fest, where the very idea of this podcast was first conceived. If you ever listen back to the episode called Try, I tell the origin story of Risk, and it kind of started one year when I did a, a, a solo show of characters at San Francisco Sketch Fest, and it was such a failure until Michael Ian Black said, why don't you start getting up on stage and telling your own stories? I said, ah, that just sounds too risky. And here we are now, folks. I always love going to San Francisco. It's probably my favorite city in the United States other than um, this one, New York, where I live. Another thing I love about San Francisco Sketch Fest is that they always put me up at Hotel Kabuki in Japantown, and I always meet wonderful people. The, 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 the time before, uh, I accidentally pooped on someone there, and th- so that was a little... Well, it was... God, I... It was not so great for him. Fine for me. But this time, I met a wonderful sweetheart of a boy who's a fan of Risk. So a shout out to Justin back there in San Fran. Let's get right to it, folks. We had uh, four wonderful... Four? Four? Did we have four? Five. We had five wonderful comedians sharing stories on the theme Intense. So uh, without further ado, here it is now. This is Risk, live from San Francisco, 2015. I want to bring our first storyteller up here tonight. He writes for Workaholics on Comedy Central. He's a part of the legendary sketch comedy group Derek Comedy. We have loved the work that he's done at Risk in Los Angeles before. Please welcome the stage, Dominic Derkis. How's everybody doing? Good? Awesome. Uh, So my story takes place in 2009. I moved out to Los Angeles in 2009 with my sketch comedy group. I believe we were the first uh, sketch comedy group to ever do that. Um, and at the time, I, the move seemed very, you know, I'm, like, I'm 26 at the time, so everything in my life seems very kind of romantic. Like, I'm, I'm not making money, but, you know, I'm, I'm doing art, and I'm, I'm going out to Los Angeles, and I'm here in Los Angeles. And then I realized that I'm, I'm just broker than I have ever been, and up to this point, ever will be in my life. Like, I just had no money at all, but I didn't let that worry me, but I dealt with it in strange ways. Like, you know, I didn't have money, so my bills are coming in, and I'm getting calls from creditors. I maxed out two credit cards, and the way I dealt with that was, because, you know, after you max out even just one, they call you, and they go, uh, we'd like to talk about payment. (laughs) And uh, I realized that that conversation led nowhere, almost always. So I just stopped answering my cell phone when I got called from like a 721, I don't know. They have the area codes that I recognized at the time, and they would call at 6.30, 7.30, 9.30, and I would just not answer my phone. I also, around this time, stopped checking my mail for the same reasons. I mean, I would check it, but I would put it literally in a box that I didn't, I just didn't want to look at it. I would just see like yellow envelopes and be like, nope, not 
Not dealing with you today. Credit card company, try corresponding with me another way. You'll have to send a gentleman to my door. I just didn't think that there were consequences for me. Like, I had this kind of like, you know, all right, yeah, maybe something will happen. But what's the worst that can happen? It's me, Dominic, the star of my life. (laughs) Nothing bad ever happens to the star of my life, me. Because in New York, uh, you know, I didn't have a car. I lived in, in, in uh, uh, I lived in the in New York City, where you don't need to have a car. But in LA, I, I had a car, and so in my mind, and I didn't lean on this a lot consciously, but in my mind, I had this alternative. I'm like, look, if shit goes south, I'll just live in my car. You know, not a great option. I'll give you, but it had like a certain romance to it. I was like, yeah, I live in my car. Maybe I'll get a dog or. <laughs> That's what you do when you move into your car, right? You take on more responsibilities. <laughs> so, so this story is about the time that that last option was even taken away from me, and I kind of uh, woke up a little bit and became slightly more responsible in my life. But I was driving home from a birthday party in this white Pontiac Grand Am that I had gotten for my college graduation. Thank you. <laughs> someone, someone had a strong reaction to the make and model <laughs> of the car. That's good. Uh, <laughs> so I'm driving home from a friend's birthday party and I'm on Sunset Boulevard and somebody turns left in front of me. I can't avoid them. I swing my car to the right to try not to hit them, but our, we end up kind of colliding head on and the airbag goes off. I hit the airbag. I, there's glass. I'm not like cut up or anything, but I'm very shaken up. It takes me a second to realize kind of what happened. And I step out of the car I'm in this haze. I've just been basically hit in the face with an inflatable bag. And uh, not basically, uh, literally. And, and so I step out of the car and I'm just trying to figure out what happened. And this guy comes running up to me and he goes, uh, he goes, are you okay? Are you okay? And I was like, I don't, I think so. And he like grabs me like behind my head and he goes, look at me, look at me in the eyes. Can you see my finger? Can you see it? And I just go, who, the, who are you? And he goes, I'm a doctor. Like he's like annoyed. And I'm... <laughs> And I was like, well, dude, open with that. Like, <laughs> identify yourself from the get-go. It was, we, we had, and that's when I realized we had kind of crashed in front of this hospital. So he's just like a doctor walking up like, I'll save the day. And then I'm giving him guff. <laughs> but to me, I thought like, what is it? What are you in some like crack team of stealth EMTs that run around like, going clear. No, I'm, I'm a doctor. It's okay. <laughs> So I, I'm out of the car. I'm, I'm pretty uh, 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 shaken up. I can't. Uh, and he, I, I pass his exam. He kind of goes like, all right, well, you don't have a concussion. I'm like, well, I might seek a second opinion later. <laughs> Street doctor. But... <laughs> and then I look at my car, and I really take in this car that I had romanticized living in if everything went south, and it just looks totaled. Like, the whole engine is smashed up. And, and I'm just like, there's no way that this car's fixable. I look over at the other guy. He's like apologizing to me, the other driver. He's okay. But he's like, I'm sorry, man. I'm sorry I didn't see you. I thought, oh, it's okay. And then his mom shows up like five minutes later. Within five minutes, his mom's there. And she's like telling me that they don't have insurance. And in my head, yeah. And so in my head, I was like very annoyed. I was like, you don't have insurance. Okay, wow, great. All right, so what's going to happen? I'm like, I'm going to have to take these people to small claims court to get my car repaired. And then the cops show up. And I was like, okay, good. Maybe the cops will help, like, you know, because I'm still thinking, like, how can I get my car fixed? And the cops show up. And I don't know if you've ever been in a traffic accident in Los Angeles and had the cops show up. But it turns out it, they don't give a shit. <laughs> they showed up and they were like, okay, all right, so... uh 
here, fill this card out. And they gave each of us a card to fill out that had like my name and address and phone number. And they gave one to him. So I filled it out. This guy filled it out. They swapped cards. They go, there you go. Now you have each other's information. You guys have a nice night. And that was it. And I was like, well, he turned in front of me and I couldn't, does he get a ticket or who's responsible? They were like, there's no witnesses. We're not going to give a ticket. And uh, you got to get your car out of the street, man. And I was like, yeah, I know. I didn't think it's like diagonal across two lanes, leaking radiator fluid. I'm like, I can't just let it crash here. I can't just let the car stay here like I'm doing some weird low stakes prank. And so they swap information. The cops drive away. And then this guy and his mom drive away because they called a towing company and had them tow the car. And the, the cop was like, well, you got to call your insurance and have them tow the car away. And I said, all right. So I pick up my phone, and as I start to call Progressive, where I had my car insurance at the time, I think to myself, I wonder if my car insurance expired. And the reason I wonder that is I half remember tossing an envelope, like a red Progressive envelope just in this box, being like, nope, I'm okay. And so I call up Progressive, and I say, I, I was just in a car accident. I have, like, my policy number here. And they go, okay, well, your insurance expired four months ago. And I was like, yeah, well... Let's get that back going, huh? <laughs> like, uh, yeah, I know, right? Silly me. Anyway, my car. And they were like, well, no, I mean, you can't. Uh, and I, I'm so in shock that I get mad at this guy on the phone. Like, I think I can back him down from this stance that, like, because I wasn't technically insured. <laughs> and I was like, really? I was a customer with you guys for a few years. <laughs> and he's like, yeah, there's nothing I can do. And I was like, well, then, all right, all right, fine. And I hang up. And this is how not clearly I was thinking. I'm, I take my phone out and I go on Geico's website and I sign up for a new car insurance policy. Standing there on the side of the road, sign my wrecked car that I'm looking at. It's wrecked and I'm staring at it and I'm going like, yeah, what's the license plate? <laughs> to get this car insured, I sign up for it and then I call up Geico. And I go, hey, I was in a car accident. <laughs> I have a policy with you guys. And guy's like, well, did you, did you just sign up for the policy? I said, yeah, yeah, a few hours ago. Yeah, yeah, and they were like, and when, uh, when was your car accident? I'm like, just, just recently, <laughs> just happened. And he goes, okay, well, look, we can send a, a tow truck out to your, uh, to your location to take your car away, but we can't, uh, you know, we can't guarantee. We'll have our claims department look into it. Uh, not to, build, uh, you know, spoiler alert, the claims department really rejected um, <laughs> the claims. They looked into the dates. That was the first thing they looked at, the date and time. <laughs> So I didn't know, so the tow truck guy comes, he gets my car up on the, on the thing, and the, and the insurance isn't going to pay for it, because I just signed up, so, he, so I signed this like, form to let him take the car away, and I didn't know how I was going to pay for it, because I didn't have any money, and the way I wound up paying them for it was by letting them keep my car. Because apparently, that's the option. Like, when you can't pay for it, they're like, like, the fees just compound. There's like a towing fee, and then every day there's more money that they tack onto it until eventually you're like, you win my car! <laughs> you invented enough numbers. And so, uh, and that is something that I uh, uh, have now done twice with cars. Like, the car I had after this, I was driving it, it was a stick shift, and the clutch gave out, and I knew that totaled the car. The clutch was going to be like a $700 repair, it's like a $1,500 car. So I just pulled the car over to the side of the road, parked it, and then just walked away. <laughs> and then it got towed, and then the towing company called me like, we have your car, and I think they expect to have leverage in that situation. They expect me to have some desire to get my car back. 
But I was like, you, you guys want it. <laughs> the only thing, the only way it could have been more irresponsible is if like the card's still been rolling, and then I just stepped out and kept walking as it like rolled up into a yard. So, so I, I get all my stuff out of the car before it's towed, and I walk back to my apartment, and I like just lay down and go to sleep. It's like four in the morning. I wake up and my whole body's sore, my back and neck and just everything from being in a car accident. It was kind of catching up to me. And I, I open my apartment door and taped to my apartment door is a notice from my landlord that I haven't paid uh, rent. Uh, or I have another week and a half to uh, pay my rent. Otherwise, they will, uh, I'll, I'll be evicted. And now I don't even have like the car like plan. I'm like, oh no, where's my dog going to sleep? <laughs> and... Uh, uh, luckily, luckily, I went down. I didn't know what else to do. I went down to the uh, mailbox. I opened up the mailbox, and there was a residual check from uh, one day on a TV show I had done like eight months earlier that was going to cover my rent. And then from that day on, I have always, always opened my mail. Thank you guys a lot. Thanks. Appreciate it. Uh, I actually pay a woman to yell at me to open my mail. Uh, when I hire JC, who is the producer of the whole enterprise here of Risk and everything, I explain to her, no, you don't understand. I am a total man-child. <laughs> Lots of your job is going to be telling me things like, no, really, open your mail. Make an appointment with the dentist. Don't forget to divorce your husband. My husband and I, we, uh, we split in 2010, but then we found out that, you know, it costs like maybe $150 a piece for each person to get legally divorced. And we're both like, fuck that, man. 150 bucks? And now I've got, uh, we've got an entertainment lawyer for this enterprise, and he's like, don't forget to divorce your husband. <laughs> so, I, I, and, <laughs> if I get enough people yelling at me about it, we'll get it done, guys. We'll get it done. I want to bring our next storyteller to the stage. He is another member of the Derek comedy team. Uh, he has written a novel called The Boy Who Couldn't Sleep and Never Had To. Another person that we've enjoyed having on Risk in Los Angeles. Welcome to the stage, D.C. Pearson! Hi, guys. Ooh, hi, guys. So, uh, my first high school relationship, my first girlfriend ever, when we started fooling around was someone else's girlfriend. She was my friend's girlfriend, and we were kind of sort of flirting and hanging out and just being friends and hanging out all the time until one night she showed up at my house in tears because uh, her boyfriend at the time had done something to make her be in tears. And then I invited her in, and she ended up laying across my lap, and I sort of screwed up all my courage, and I leaned down and rolled up her shirt and started making out with her stomach. Uh, and then what we decided at that point was that we wouldn't be cheating on her boyfriend as long as we only ever did that. So there were several weeks of me just making out with her stomach until I screwed up all my courage and asked the most important question a teenage boy can ask, 
boobs. And so we ended up uh, dating. Eventually, she broke up with her boyfriend, and we ended up dating for like a year and a half, and she graduated high school. She was older than me, and she went to college in the same town that we lived in. And then one night, she called me, and she was like, can I come over? And I was like, sure. And she came over, and just so you can imagine her, she had like shoulder-length brown hair, and she had like big kind of anime eyes, and you know, like by that, yeah, she, anime eyes, you know, she wasn't Asian, but for some reason I just decided that that would be confusing to some of you, or and like it was important at all, I, I realize it's not important, and now I've dug myself a terrible hole, <laughs> big anime eyes, not Asian, uh, and she comes over and she tells me that the head of her college improv group had kissed her that night. And I said, well, what does that mean for us? And she, in essence, said, there is no more us. And so we broke up. And I know, right? So I have then in the intervening years become a writer and a comedian. And I have told at storytelling shows just like this one, stories of my true life and relationships that I've been in. In this story, this whole saga of our uh, the, the illicit beginnings of our relationship and us dating and then her breaking up with me in a way where I could only be so mad because of the illicit origins of our own relationship. But up to that limit, I was really mad. Like I could... <laughs> I. This is like my Lord of the Rings story, right? Like this saga of our relationship. And so every story I was telling was building up to telling that story. And I finally developed it. I developed it into this like hour-long storytelling show. And then last year, I got asked to do San Francisco Sketchfest here in San Francisco at Sketchfest like we are. And I was like, oh, cool. Yeah, I would love to do it. I got asked to do it as a stand-up. They were like, you have an hour to do material. And I was like, I don't have an hour of material. But I do have an hour-long story show that is just me telling this story of that high school relationship. So exactly a year ago, like literally you guys, a year ago tonight here in San Francisco, I came here and I went to the punchline and I got introduced as a stand-up and rather than doing an hour-long stand-up show, I told this story of my first ever high school relationship and its illicit beginnings and its end. And about 20 minutes into the show, I realize kind of in the corner there's a girl and I kind of just something kind of like shifts in my gut and I say to myself I think that's her but I'm not sure and I don't want to look over there anymore because if I in fact confirm for myself that it's her everyone here will need a refund and so I, I sort of don't look over there anymore and I because I, I don't want to confirm or deny that it's her and I finish the show and it goes pretty well people seem to like it okay and I get off stage and just all this adrenaline is surging through me and I say to a friend of mine I think she's here I think the girl from the show is here and he's like does she live in San Francisco and I say I think so maybe when what I mean is I know she does because of Facebook And he's like, well, you got to go see if she's here. You got to go see. And so I go out to the front of the punchline and right there underneath the ancient green awning that has clearly been there since comedy required a blazer. <laughs> she's standing there in the overhead light out in front of the punchline. And she still looks largely the same. She still has the same, you know, sort of like shoulder length or longer hair. Now it's got some blonde highlights in it. Same anime eyes. Still not Asian. And... <laughs> 
and she's and, and, and like we like when people from our past we see them and they look the way they've always looked because then we think like maybe I look the way I've always looked but I know I don't look the way I've always looked because now I look like the Almond Brothers' brother that they don't talk about <laughs> and it's her you guys and she starts hitting the fuck out of me playfully hitting the fuck out of me. You know what I mean? Like Elaine from Seinfeld style, like a lot of forearms like this, you know? And at that moment, you know, it's like, it's like, you know, but it's with a, with a purpose. You know what I mean? It's like the highlights magazine of hitting fun with a purpose, you know? And she's like, she just is doing a lot of these, like, you know, hitting me with her forearms. And it's at that moment that I remember that our relationship back in high school did feature a lot of her playfully hitting me. And in my head, I'm like, I got to add that to the show. <laughs> and... And my friend told me, he was like, I saw this moment and he was like, you did a very good job of converting actual legitimate shock into like, oh, happy surprise. Like, I'm just like, hey. <laughs> and she's like, did you know I was here? And I was like, no, I didn't know you were here. And I thought that that would probably relieve a lot of it. Because, like, how terrible would that be? Somebody sees you in the audience and just decides to, like, verbally dox you right there. Like, just lay out all your garbage in front of everybody. I thought that would make it better. And be like, no, I, no, I didn't know you were here. Because I really didn't know that she was there. And she was like, so you just do this show? <laughs> and I was like, yeah, it goes really well. And I just put myself in her head, right? Like she just showed up to this show thinking just like, oh, my ex-boyfriend is like a stand-up comedian now. I'm just going to see some like comedy. Like he's going to get up there and be like, hey, what's the deal with airline food? And instead I got up there and it's like, what's the deal with how vulnerable you were when you were 17? And so she's like, you just do this show? I'm like, yeah, it goes really well. And she's like, are you, are you like just touring around the country doing this show? Which really puts me in an emotional quandary because you never want to tell any ex of yours that you might be less successful than they might immediately assume. But I was like, no, I'm not touring around the country doing the show. I've just done it like just here and um, in LA where I live and in Arizona where we're from and uh, just New York. And like that seems to somehow assuage her, uh, you know, feelings because instead of touring around the nation on like DC's emotional vendetta, he should have let this go 10 years ago, tour 2014. It's just five of the biggest cities. Um, and so that seems to kind of like assuage her angst. You know what I mean? And I haven't seen this girl, like I, I can't emphasize to you guys, like I have not seen this girl since the night that I had dinner with her after we were going to be like, we're fine, we're friends, we're just friends. And we went to get pizza and I was convinced in my head, like, we're going to go back to her apartment after this, her apartment that she shared with the guy that she now lived with, the head of her college improv group. And somehow I'm going to like win her back through the power of justice. Like, it's just right that I'm going to win her back. And so somehow I will. And we got back to that adult college apartment and it was just like soaked in grown-upness and I remember looking on their TV stand and they had a Nintendo GameCube and somehow I just knew it's over. <laughs> He's buying her a GameCube. I can't compete with that. <laughs> and I asked her, I was like, are you okay with me doing the show? And she was like, yeah, it's fine. It's, it's, it's fine. 
And she and, and I was like, I'm sorry, I'm getting I'm getting like legitimately emotional because this is like me telling a story. And then I'm here exactly one year ago to this night. And not only do I think she's probably here, I think you're all her, if that makes any sense. <laughs> but I'm like, is it OK that I do this this show? And she's like, yeah, it's fine. And that was really important to me because we do we do these shows like Kevin does these shows. We all do these storytelling shows. And we tell stories and there are things we tell ourselves as true storytellers, like, you know, write about people like they're dead and like you own your stories. They happen to you. But what we forget is that like the characters in our stories are people out there in the world. And, you know, they have money to buy tickets to shows and they can be there in front of you. And I was like, is everything in the show, does it happen the way you remembered it? And it, she was like, yeah, it, it is the way I remembered it. And that meant so much to me. And I think it speaks very well of her that, that like this was a, a story that reflects very poorly on both of us and where we were at that very vulnerable time in our lives. And she was like, yeah, that's, that is what really happened. And so I was like, okay, cool. And, and then she got really upset at me because I didn't say her real name in the show. In the show, I used the name, just randomly picked out of a hat, of another friend of ours from that time in our lives. And she was like, also, fucking so-and-so? Instead of my real name, you use the name of fucking so-and-so? Because so-and-so is less conventionally attractive than the girl I dated. And yes, I am bragging. <laughs> and so I was like, if you want, if you want, like, you can pick what the fake name I will use for you from now on when I tell this story is, if you want. And I was like, what should it be? And she was like, I don't know right now. Don't like ask me. Oh, also, I forgot to mention, she was super wasted because like halfway through the show, the waitress in the comedy club just somehow intuited that she was the girl from the story, which who is this comedy club waitress and where is her television show? <laughs> like this comedy, like touched by a punchline waitress. Like she just brings free drinks and uses the healing power of alcohol to help people that have been victimized by the very selfish act that is comedy. So she's like, okay, cool. And she still, to this day, hasn't like told me what the fake name she wants to be called is. But we part. We go off into the night. And I'm like, jacked. I'm like, it's her. And my whole fear in my entire life was that somebody in my stories would be at a show. And she is like the white whale of those people that might arrive at my show. And she was here. She lived through the entire thing. As far as she was concerned, I was doing it solely to fuck with her, which who does she think I am? <laughs> and I lived and I'm jacked. And I'm like, now I have a fucking ending, right? And I go and I do the show the next night. I, it's a two-night show, Friday and Saturday night. I go and do the show the next night, and I'm like, this is so exciting. I'm going to get to tell this new ending in the building where it happened. You know what I mean? Like, this is, like, so incredibly immersive. I'm the new Brecht. Um, and I'm so excited, so I go and I do the show the next night, and I get to the end of the show, and I point to the corner, and I'm like, and then I realize, like, right there, I was like, I, I just think, like, that is my ex-girlfriend, Allison. She's sitting right here in the room, and the girl that's sitting right where she is, just, her face just drops, and she's like, my name is Allison. Another Allison was sitting there. <laughs> It was like reality was giving me a note on my story. It was like, you know, I gave you that new ending last night. Right, I know, that's not good enough. The new ending is a girl the next night is going to be sitting exactly where she was sitting and she's going to have the exact same fucking name. 
Legis, Allison's not her name. None of these things are her name. Like I said, she still hasn't Facebooked me to give her what her new name is. I've known this girl for 15 years, and I still don't know what to call her. Thank you very much. Daisy Pearson. I met someone recently and then made a joke in one of my stories, like just a metaphorical reference to a baby in the story. And this fella that I had just met and we hadn't even gone on an actual date yet was like, was that a reference to the fact that you want to have my babies? (laughs) So you got to be careful out there. With telling true stories, uh, even when you're just making metaphorical references in a joking way to babies that you don't have. Um, I want to bring up to the stage, she wrote for the wonderful show, Totally Biased with Kamal Bell. Great show, we love Kamal, and Janine has done the show several times as well, and we always love having her on. Please welcome to the stage, Janine Brito! Hi. Uh, I am not DC's ex-girlfriend. Uh, I also resent that blazer comment. Um, uh, I'm also telling an ex story. Uh, I have horrible taste in women. Um, like just real, real bad. Like, like every time. Amanda Bynes or Lindsay Lohan fall apart the more I'm, I fall in love with them. It's like this weird codependent, like, let me save you kind of thing that I have. Like, the more I date, the more I realize I'm, I'm not attracted to women that remind me of my mother. Instead, I am attracted to the women that my father dated after he left my mother. Uh, which is soups fucked up. Uh, especially when you consider the fact that my dad left my mom for a former stripper from Pensacola named Lilac. Um, And I am fully self-aware that if the modern-day version of Lilac were in this theater, I would be like, you have a prison record and a chest tattoo? (laughs) Yes, I will co-sign alone. Because this is love. Like that's, and it's, 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 I've always chosen awful people. Like my first girlfriend, Melby, was so bad to me that after we broke up, her mother, her mother called me and said, I understand and I'm so sorry. <laughs> like that level. Uh, my next girlfriend, Mel C, uh, I'm not using their names, but I'm using Spice Girl pseudonyms, which I feel like everyone would be fine with, by the way. Um, DC, I recommend Zena for your lady's name. But Mel B, uh, Mel C, I supported uh, for two years financially so that she could really focus on her Etsy career. Um, and at the end of the two years, uh, she dumped me, uh, returning her engagement ring on New Year's Eve and informing me that she had met someone else while I was on the road making money for her. Uh, those are the kind of women I date. I, I used to wish she would die in a fire. Um, 
now I've progressed to the point where I just kind of hope her clip rots and falls off and she never experiences pleasure again. Um, and I think that's the power of Buddhism. Um, so when Mel C dumped me, it was right around the time where uh, I, was, I was moving to New York and I was determined to, like, this was going to be my turning point. Like, I was Stella. I was going to get my fucking groove back. Like, this is my, this is it. And so when I got to New York, I started going to therapy, as you do. Um, <laughs> when you realize you're a broken person uh, who keeps making the same mistakes. The week before I started dating, like, right around when I started dating, my therapist gave me an assignment, uh, See, I've, I've been through some sad things in my life. Uh, when, I was, when I was 16, I was diagnosed with lymphoma uh, and battled that for a couple years. And, and, and six months after I beat it, uh, my father suddenly died of a brain tumor. Um, and it, it's something that really affected me, but I would never tell anyone about it. I was too scared. And I also, like, the biggest fear was that I would be a burden on someone uh, and my therapist was like, that's not a thing people think when you tell them harrowing, vulnerable stories. So my assignment was like, next time it comes up, don't be scared to open up. So that, soon after that, I had an okay Cupid date uh, <laughs> with an Australian girl, which, oh, that's already a warning sign. Uh, <laughs> and when I met Victoria, a.k.a. Posh Spice. Um, she was even more breathtaking than her photos, and she was, like, the first cool person I dated. She was a bartender and a graffiti artist and was just covered in tattoos, which is my lady boner weakness. Um, and, like, it was incredible. Like, we hit it off instantaneously. Like, the, the first time we kissed in the basement of a nightclub, like, I had to hold on to her leopard print tights, which, of course, that's what she was wearing, because it, it felt like floating. And we slept together right away, and it was amazing. Uh, which, you should always be careful when the sex is good enough, because uh, you do crazy things when that happens. Like, dick will make you slap somebody, is a very true statement. Uh... It's very true. Look up that YouTube video. Uh, so we were inseparable from that moment. I, I had intended for this thing to be casual, but lesbians rarely do casual. Um, so from that moment onward, we were just inseparable. We, we barely left my room, let alone my building. And I remember one night in a rooftop in Brooklyn, my shit came up. And I, I, I confessed all this stuff to her. And Posh Spice was just shocked when I told her all these things and she was she was like oh my god my my father has been battling lymphoma for the last 10 years and we just started pouring out all these things like we just got each other we got the hospital visits and the heartache and the sadness of losing our heroes and it was just like the mental met the physical connection and we just started making these plans together like she told me she wanted to marry me like right away and it didn't seem crazy and like to the point like uh victoria was poly but she was so in love with me like i was willing to give it a shot but she was like no you're it and she broke up with all of her lovers and it seemed like we were on the same page and and, and it was a wonderful time and there were some warning signs um like she still had her okay cupid profile up as my friends would inform me. Whenever I asked about it, she'd be like, oh, I forgot the password, so I can't dick it down. 
there was also the time she told me about how her mother used to beat her, and every time she broke a bone, she would look up that bone in a medical book, and that's how she learned how to draw anatomy. Uh, later on, I would read that exact same story in her favorite book. Uh, there was also the fact that she used to brag about breaking her friend Bridget's heart so badly that Bridget had to flee Australia for New York. And somehow Bridget always came over all the time. But I put it all out of my mind. I was like, she's foreign, she's free. I just got to be more relaxed and go with the flow and be cool like her. Because she did make me feel like the center of her universe when she was around me. She would cook meals for me every night and, and she even named our children. Uh, ruckus, riot, and rebel, which drove me crazy, but also like in a good way, because I was like, that's so anarchist and artistic like her. <laughs> and we had this plan. We were, we were gonna, we, I was gonna work to get us a house in New York and in Melbourne so that I would write, and, and, and on breaks, you know, I'd tour in Australia, and she would come with me tagging in whatever city we were in, and, and it just seemed like the perfect life that we were working towards. And then she got a phone call from home. Uh, and her father had taken a turn for the worst. And she elected to stay because she was too scared to be on a plane when she got the news that he passed. So I was there when she got it, and I, I, I tried my best to, to be a rock for her in a, in a pain I knew very well. And I couldn't go back for the funeral because I had just gotten this dream job writing for television that I worked for for almost a decade. And I would lose it if I left. And I couldn't lose it because this job was a stepping stone to this life that we had imagined together. And it was a life I was doubly committed to because the day her father died was August 27th, 11 years to the day that my father had passed. It seemed like we were just meant to be. We were written in the universe. And so she went home, and it was, it was awful. It was a terrible terrible, hard, difficult thing to do. We, I, would, I would work 12 to 16 hours a day and then rush home just to talk to her all night. I was getting like three or four hours of sleep, but she was absolutely worth it. And I spent $3,000 on, on a flight to Australia to spend the holidays with her because I knew how difficult that would be. And when I got there, Victoria was a completely different person. She was incredibly cold. She would barely look at me, let alone touch me. And when I asked her about it, she said, well, you know, I don't like PDA, I think it's rude. And then would immediately straddle a friend or, or run her fingers through an ex's hair. And whenever I wouldn't snort whatever powder her friends were dragging around and passing and doing, she'd say that I was a Debbie Downer and then turn to one of them and say, I fucking hate Debbie Downers. And it hurt so much. And when I finally said something to her about it, she admitted, she said, I am in an angry place with the world, and you and my mother are the only people I can let it out on. And it felt like such an honor to be close enough to be hurt by her like that. And we went home to her house for Christmas, and it was perfect. It was just the two of us. And we reconnected again, and it was just like New York, and it was just this immediate passion. And then when we got back, to her house with her friends over New Year's, she was suddenly very distant. And on New Year's Eve, when, when the clock struck midnight, she gave me a peck on the cheek and then turned to a friend and gave her a lingering kiss and whispered something in her ear. And when I asked her about it, she exploded and wouldn't talk to me for the rest of the night. And I felt like 
garbage. But then the next day we made up, and it was so fantastic that when she exchanged numbers with an old crush the day before I left, I didn't say anything because I didn't want to rock the boat and ruin this perfect life we were building. And she took me to the airport, gave me a deep kiss and said, we got through this, we can get through anything. And I returned, uh, you know, even, even more in love and committed. But she wouldn't return my calls. She dropped off the face of the planet. And two weeks later, she finally called me back and said, I need to put a pin in this. I need to put myself together to be good enough for you. And I said, that's fine. I was willing to do anything for her, even if it meant stepping away. And then I noticed the pictures online. The hand-holding, the embraces, the, the birthday cake that said, I love you to the moon and back. It was the crush. And it had started a week after I left. And I was crushed completely. But she would always call and assure me that, that we were soulmates and she was coming back. This was just something she needed to do. And I couldn't sleep. So when I was off work on the weekends, I'd polish off about a bottle of wine Friday and Saturday night and then Sunday night and eventually I was drinking a bottle by myself every night of the week uh, then I added the sleeping pills to help a little bit and eventually I would do this dance where I would, I would polish off a bottle of red wine staring down the pills because I hurt like it was the first time I was sad enough that it was physically painful like I would have these, these fantasies about taking a knife and literally cutting my heart out because it hurt so much I didn't listen to music for a year and a half because when you're heartbroken enough, every song is like, remember this thing that's about you? Like, it's just about that shit. Like, I cried to Miley Cyrus's Wrecking Ball in a cubicle like at least five times. I'm a grown fucking woman. That's not supposed to happen to me. It was really touch and go for a while. And the thing that, always, that would always stop me is, is, is I would sit down and write an explanation to everyone and who would get what. And that was always the thing that would stop me from doing it. And eventually, like the closed calls became fewer and farther in between. But this past November, I was walking through the New Orleans and she reached out again and I found myself just at base level again, crying on Bourbon Street, just sobbing. But instead of getting a drink, I called a friend and I talked to her about it and she said, I want you to read something. And she sent me a link to an article that said, 30 signs you're in a relationship with a sociopath. <laughs> and every single one hit. I read through five and I was like, no, that's crazy. This is the love of my life. At about 15, I was like, maybe they're onto something. Uh, late 20s, I was like, yep, she is a monster. It was like a Kaiser Soze moment. Like as the cup <laughs> fell down from the table, I was like, oh, I was a plaything. Got it. Like, a listicle saved my life, eventually. Uh, if, if, if the only way it could have been lamer would have been if, if it was a BuzzFeed list. Um, <laughs> and, like, I'm finally, I can finally listen to music again. And, I, and the, the lesson I learned, which is going to be super cheesy, which I fucking hate, is <sighs> coincidence doesn't equal magic. And I don't care how big it feels and how true it might seem... No one is worth that much pain because the greatest love you can have in your life is yourself. And I know that sounds like an Oprah-ism, 
but she's like the happiest billionaire in the world, and there's a reason for that. Um, and you know, like eventually, baby's gonna get her life together, and I'm gonna find my ginger spice. Thank you guys very much. anything to follow that that was so awesome i want to bring up our next storyteller he is a writer for nathan fielder's show on comedy central um so hilarious leo has told stories for us from the very beginning back when risk was just starting about five or six years ago and uh, i always just love to hear him share any about anything i love to hear him share his feelings Please welcome to the stage, Leo Allen! Keep it going for Kevin, please. Keep it going for Kevin, Allison, and for Janine. Oh, God, that made me think of my ex-girlfriend I didn't even want to talk about. But, um... God damn it, that made me so mad. <laughs> this reminded me of something I thought I was not ever gonna worry about again. But I'm talking about anger, so I'll just briefly, Janine made me think of uh, when my girlfriend broke up with me, even though we were living together an hour before I got in an airplane. Um, she, it's fine now, it's fine. Uh, obviously I'm completely fine. Uh, I would, for months, I would, I like, I'm not a violent person, but I'm angry. That's what I'm going to talk about. But I would, like, literally sit and pray for her death. Uh, sort of like Janine was saying. I wasn't that specific, like, fire. I, I don't even, I was just like, if she was dead. And I started to worry about it, so I talked to my therapist about it. And she was like, no, it's totally fine to pray for someone's death. And I was like, that's the fucking best $150 I've ever spent to get the okay to pray for the death of a person. So great. So yeah, I want to talk about anger. People don't um, think I'm angry because I'm polite, usually. So I don't think that's how I come off. But um, I... I, I try to work on it, like, because there's two kinds of anger that are very different. There's inner-directed anger. That's the kind that uh, people don't notice or they don't talk to you about much because it's what gets you to pick them up from the airport and, uh, you know, loan them money and stuff. Uh, and also, I think, like, when you're like, I hate myself, I hate myself, you, a lot of times you don't even notice you're doing it. And it's really just because you're really thinking, I'm so great and people don't get it. That's, uh, that's what I think inner-directed anger is. So that's, but outer-directed anger is the one I, I really was working on because that's, that's the one that people really don't like because it expresses itself in, in the world. And for me, I first started to realize that it was a problem because I would, I would get really angry at inanimate objects and I would, like, break them. And people do not like that, I found out. Especially female people. They do not 
like it when like I had a girlfriend and uh, this is a different girlfriend. I never never prayed for her death. Thank you. Um, she was in my apartment and I stubbed my toe on a chair and I picked the chair up over my head and I s- smashed it on the ground into pieces. Like just like it's like if you're trying to strangle someone to death and it takes like three steps. I was like bang 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 until it was kindling and then I was like <sighs> and I looked at the woman who was like a month away from ending things who was like what the who the fuck are you I, like I hadn't even thought that it was strange to just break a thing because it hurt me uh, it didn't even cross my mind and then you can see the fear in the person and you're you, it, you, there's no way uh, you can't be like oh I would never do that to you uh <laughs> Or our baby. I would never do that to a baby. It's a chair. It's an old chair. Got it off the streets. I rescued this chair. I fostered this chair. It's mine to kill. And then I started to do that kind of thing on my own, which is in a way even worse. One time I I did it to a printer not proud of this. Printer. You ever have a printer that you pay like 300 bucks for and then it just stops working? What do you do? Smash it? That's what I did. I guess I could have I guess I could have googled what was wrong with it or something. I was like, "No, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to unplug it." I like that I was I had the presence of mind like, "I'm not no one needs to get electrocuted over this." Let's be reasonable here. Unplugged it, lifted up over my head, smashed it on the ground, glass everywhere, ink everywhere. I'm like, fuck you, printer, you don't work. (laughs) The only thing more disturbing is when you hear someone saying like positive things to an inanimate object. Then you're totally crazy if you're like, way to go, printer, thank you. Thank you for printing that out so legibly so I can use it when I'm on the go. Um, this is when I knew I had a problem. I had roommates this time, and I, I was in the kitchen, and I had um, dropped a golden raisin. I remember it was a golden... This is a very specific instance. <laughs> this is a real life moment for me. It was a golden raisin, and I bent down to pick it up, I guess because it was golden... And I bent down, and I picked it up, full of hope, and I stood up quickly, bang! I smashed my head so hard on a metal cabinet I had left open. Like, so, like, blood pouring, and I slammed the cabinet closed, and I started punching it, and I was like, fuck you, cabinet! Fuck you! Fuck you! Fuck you! I will fucking rip you off the wall! We'll have open shells in this kitchen! Fuck you! Fuck you! Fuck you! And then I, this is when it got disturbing. I walked out of the kitchen. And then I walked back in. And another thing! (laughs) Fuck you! I'm not done with you! I had to finish the incident. So then I decided, okay, I I need to um, work on this uh, anger situation. So... 
I, I sought some help, and uh, I I, um, I would get angry at people, too. I just haven't told you those, because those are awful. Uh, <laughs> just explosions, like little explosions. So I was starting to work on it. I read some books. I saw some people, and uh, they were like, you know, just notice what you're thinking. Like, that's a good way to go about it. Like, be aware of what you're thinking. You know, think about if the anger is really about the person or the inanimate object. Um, this was, I think, a positive turning point after all this work. Um, I was running. I was jogging. So that's how long ago this is. Uh, I wouldn't even consider jogging now. Sometimes I, when I'm in New York now and I hear the subway coming, I'm like, there was a time I might have run for that. Not now. No way. Let the kids, let the kids in their 20s, let the interns run for the train. I'm not doing that. So I was running and I stopped. I'd run a couple miles and I was, so I was exercising and I was like, that ah, tired, like kind of spacey, just finished running, walking down 9th Avenue, just kind of out of it, sweaty, <sighs> like that. And not really paying attention, feel kind of good because I'd run. And then I felt like this massive shove from behind me, this massive shove out of nowhere. I was like, oh my God, what the? I turned around and there's this guy and he goes, why don't you watch where the fuck you're going? Why don't you fucking watch where you're going, man? And my uh, immediate response, my, my thought was, I'm going to beat the shit out of this guy because he was smaller than me and white. And, uh, <laughs> but I was like, no, don't be like that. Don't just like, okay, you're angry. Notice that. And like, but while I was thinking this, the guy's like, why are you fucking looking at me? Fuck you. Turn around and get the fuck out of here, you fucking homo. Fuck you. Like, it's bringing all this weird stuff into it. And I just wanted to, like, just fucking kill him. I, I wanted to get, but I was like, okay, don't do that. Don't do that. And then I was like, okay. He's, and this whole time I've been thinking, he's like, get the fuck out of here. Don't look at me. Get the fuck out of here. Fuck you. And... And then I was like, okay, I'm going to yell at him. I'll just yell at him. I'll be like, fuck you, you motherfucker. Blah, blah. Uh, and then I was like, okay, don't do that. Uh, I'll go the opposite way. I'll go the opposite way, but not in like a, a snarky, ironic way. I'll go the opposite way in the most real way I can. And he's like, fuck you. Get the fuck out of here. So I go, listen, I did not mean to walk in front of you if that's what you thought I did and... I'm really sorry if you thought I was messing with you, but uh, the way you're acting, uh, we will never be able to be friends. <laughs> and you have potentially lost a good friend in your life. <laughs> so I hope the rest of your life is good and that you get everything you want and all the best of you, friend, I'll never have. And I turned around and I walked back down 9th Avenue and about 20 seconds later, I heard behind me, I swear to God, I heard the guy go, hey man, I'm sorry. <laughs> I turned around and I said, I accept your apology. Thank you very much. Uh, so maybe there is a chance for progress. Thank you very much, everybody. A potential friend to us all.
let me bring our final storyteller to the stage. He is so incredibly hilarious. He's an amazing improviser. He is all over the place nowadays. He is in David Cross's new movie, Hits. Uh, so be sure to check that out. Please welcome to the stage, James Adomian! <laughs> Thank you, Kevin. Uh, I have a story where there's no good guys. Uh, it's a story of a, a very intense living situation I had. Uh, uh, seven to five years ago, I lived... Well, first of all, I was in a sketch group, and I won't say what it is, uh, but we moved into a mansion that was named after the sketch group, so I'll call it the Mischief Mansion. And uh, this is in Hollywood, and uh, there were uh, it was a large sketch group, so half of us moved into this house together, and that was me and six other guys. They were all straight, and I'm not, so I was the gay one in the sketch group and in the house, and that was a wonderful. Uh, I, I thought like, yeah, hey, I'm like protected by all these like tough guys. They only say faggot ironically occasionally. Um, <laughs> So, like, I moved into this house with everybody, and we thought this was going to be a great idea. We found this great place, and uh, we, we want to move in together and have these wild parties and stuff. They were all young. Most of them were younger. There's one guy who was older than me. I was the next oldest at, like, 28, and then everybody else was, like, they might as well have been 19. They were all just, like, they weren't 19, but they were, like, very young 20-somethings. And uh, so we moved into this house. What it unfolded was, like, the fall of the house of Usher, like... <laughs> Oh, the Edward Allan Poe story. It was, we signed a two-year lease, and there was a huge deposit, because, like, they expected us to wreck the house. And um, when I said there's no good guys, I mean, uh, we, we didn't do well, and the landlords were crazy also. Like, it was hard to tell who was the real landlord. There was the, the woman that I'll just call Evita, because that's clearly who she uh, looked like and wanted to think of herself as. And she would come over and say things like, being a landlord is so hard. And I'm like, no, it's not. Uh, and um, she, she had crazy uh, like demands that she put into the lease. Like, if you film here, you can film, but you can have no props. And like, she didn't know what props were. She thought they were some kind of lighting rig or something. She was like, and it was in writing too. No props. And we're like, all right, we'll do like... Uh, Black turtlenecks, I guess. Uh, that was the landlord, but then she had this other landlord, which was, no one could tell if it was her husband or her father or brother or something. But he, uh, he lived in the back house behind us with a bunch of, like, speed addicts that was, like, his army of maintenance men for that and his other rental properties. And for some reason, he loved hiring people who did speed. Um... And he, I'll just call him Frogman because he looked like a frog. And uh, he sounded like what a frog. If, if, in, like in real life, if, uh, if you were like, oh, the frog turns into a prince, he would actually turn into this landlord guy. Like, <laughs> yes, I am Frogman. And like, um, you know, the whole thing was full of lies from the beginning on every side. Like, they were like, you'll respect this house that's almost 100 years old. And we were like, absolutely. And... And we were like, and you'll maintain it according to legal codes. And they were like, oh, of course. <laughs> like, there were signs that things were going to go wrong when, like, the first day we moved in, one of the hot shots that I lived with got in a fight with old Frogman 
over like cleaning up some. There was like an open sewage spill uh, the first day we moved in, and he was like, "You have to clean this up." And the guy was like, "Don't ever tell me what to do." <laughs> I I think the first week I lived there, I came to him and I was like, "Hey, the sink in our bathroom upstairs uh, doesn't drain; it's clogged up." And he immediately like we were we lived there like three or four days, and he was like, "It's your fault. You clip your beard, and it, uh, the shavings get in sync." And I'm like, "I haven't shaved once yet here. You're, I see where I see how you can hurl blame very effectively." Um, so at first, it was a very fun and creative uh, place to live. We shot videos there. We had parties, but then of course the parties. I uh, got out of hand. There was like uh, every there were seven of us, so every night of the week, someone was at a bar and would bring everyone back from that particular <laughs> bar. Uh, so it was just like a constant after party every day for two years. <laughs> and then the bills began to pile up, and the bottles began to pile up, and the bees began to pile up. Um, there was bills that I never thought could possibly be tabulated in these amounts uh, for like a large population living in one roof. There was like a $3,000 DWP bill and I was one of the only ones who ever paid it and it was always still somehow $3,000. And then the bottles, there was like all these parties so there was these trash piles and then like retaliatory messes that someone would be like, I'll make a mess because you did. And um... And then there was bees, which wasn't our fault. There was, like, bees living in the chimney the whole time, but they, like, they started to thrive um, because we never used the fireplace because it was Los Angeles. So um, there was these bees that lived in the chimney, and then, like, the landlord's method of, like, getting rid of the bees was to send two of his speed freaks up on the roof, like, whacking each other, like... Not prop like there's like very specific ways you're supposed to deal with bees. They went up there like Laurel and Hardy. Let's let's whack at the bees. <laughs> and then you know things fell apart. Uh, it was a constant mess, and like the disagree. There were these bitter disagreements that would erupt among the roaches in the kitchen, um, let alone the the people living there. I, my rent kept going up every month somehow. Like, someone was getting away with, like, the rent going down, and mine went up, like, $5 a month reliably. Like, dude, we got to reconfigure this. All right, I'll pay five more dollars. And um, so and, uh, over the course of time, in unrelated fashion, I kind of drifted away from the sketch show for, like, creative reasons, and, I, and I, this was not taken well by the group overall. And uh, there was, like, resentment, and uh, so I kind of retreated into my gay bedroom up on the second floor, uh, and it was like being under house arrest, because I was just gay in my beautiful, perfect, clean room, and then everything else was like animal house. <laughs> I felt like Rapunzel. Um, like, tr- I wish I had like not been losing my hair at the time. Like, I could like have someone like climb up and save me. Um, and the inspect, there they started being surprise inspections, uh, which, which uh, we found out later was like a method for getting us out and evicting us in order to. Um, and there was a mess all the time, but it was you know it never it was never structural damage to the place. <laughs> I, I don't know when the house began to resemble a live reenactment of the book Collapse by Jared Diamond, but that happened. Where it was hard to pinpoint what exactly caused this society to collapse was it misallocation of resources was it environmental degradation was it um hostile neighbor it it was all of those we had all that um so there was a lot of factors closing in and um 
I left the show. The 24-7 party didn't notice that there was a political change in the house. So um, it was very lonely for me and weird. And then um, the word gay started being thrown around more around the house in non-ironic ways uh, in, as a way to make me leave the room. So then uh, I was just kind of... I was there like Julian Assange on the second floor of my, um, my own home. And um, the D- DWP bill still steady at $3,000. Um, and then we neared the final six months and it turned into like a Goddardamerung. Like it was like the end of an opera because everybody could see the end coming. And so all these like, uh, like the young people who live in the house were like, I'm not going to pay nothing. And then the landlord is like, I'll make them pay extra. And, um, <laughs> so it was like a spiraling tornado of like threats and outrage and inspections and like ridiculous accusations. And I saw the writing on the wall literally like one of the idiot roommates like wrote all over his walls in his room and that was nice that was like a nice like poetic like uh, moment like oh there's literal writing on the wall i need to get out of here <laughs> like uh i'm a genius that kind of thing um <laughs> was written all over the wall so i i finally um and i was starting to do stand-up and perform on my own for the first time so i finally got out and i moved out symbolically i moved out on my birthday which was this early, I had been in there like three or four months not doing the show but still living there because I didn't have a better way to do it. So I got somebody to sublet my room, my beautiful gay, gay room, but I evacuated everything uh, beautiful and gay about it. And um, <laughs> my roommates responded by the day after I moved out, they, they did like a photo shoot that was deliberately hostile to me in my room. And luckily there was nothing left. Um, but because they would have used that if I'd left anything of mine, they would have put it in their photo shoot. But um, I got out on my birthday. I made up with most, and, and some of them were dear friends. Like some of them would tell me, like, "Hey, they're talking shit about you," and it was like a great, like a back channel intelligence program. And I was like, "Yes, keep feeding me information." And um, I went back over, like, we, what happened was I was like, I'm moving out. And then everybody else was like, "Well, I'm not paying rent," but they didn't get like subletters to uh, do it. So then, like. I went back over, and people were, like, threatening, like, we're not paying. And then, so it was just like, well, okay, well, then it's going to be a certain eviction. And then the letters, tones, they started coming in, like, more hostile, threatening tones. These letters from the landlord, like, um, like we're going to sue you for everything in the deposit plus extra. And then I realized, oh, I'm the only one who they could possibly get this money from. So I got worried about it. And I would come over sometimes to see what the house was like, and it was like, um, it was like the fall of Saigon. It was like... I went over there one time, I remember like a month before like the uh, eviction was going to happen. I went over there and it was like walking into Colonel Kurtz's camp in Apocalypse Now. Like there, were, there might as well have been like fires and like bodies hanging from the walls. Like it was an absolute disaster. But still, the, structurally, the house was fine. And, um, <laughs> but uh, the landlords had this crazy idea they were going to get like $15,000 deposit plus another several tens of thousands of dollars out of us. So what we did was finally, and this was a beautiful gesture, we all organized like, hey, we got to pitch in like a Judy Garland movie and like save the old barn. And um, so like we cleaned the fucking thing. And I've never cleaned, I've never, it was like a week full of cleaning, like scrubbing down to the the wood floors and stuff and we finally did it and it was actually it looked really nice and like we buffed the floors and put a lot of money into that so we didn't have to put money into uh frogman and vita 
And then so everybody moved, pulled out, and it was just kind of this dead husk, like a shell of a living creature that was left uh, around afterwards. And um, we evacuated, and the only thing left up there was the writing on the wall. And they were like, this is outrageous. And they were going to, like, crucify us over this. So, um, so I went back over there, and I went with a camera the day that we were supposed to be out. Uh, so it was, like, kind of questionable whether I should have been there on the property, but they didn't change the locks. So I went in with a camera, and I took, decided, because no one had thought to do this, and I hadn't been living there, so I went over and I um, took pictures of all the floors and stuff, and I specifically got like the sunlight bouncing off the floors to be like, look how perfect everything is, and it was great. I, I was there for like half an hour, and I got photos of everything and how great the house looked. As I was leaving, the frogman pulled up in his evil truck, and he was like, you're not supposed to be here. And I was like, hey, I'm just uh, taking some pictures of the place before we get out of here. And he's like, I'm going to sue you for $100,000. And that was like an amount of money that was like fictional. Like he, would, he, was, he was just like, you lose, I take everything. And um, so uh, I started calling, I was like, you look like a fraud. I just told him what I'd always said in private because I realized that we reached the point where there's no, there was no common ground anymore. So I was like, ribbit, ribbit, you look like a frog. And he goes, ribbit, ribbit. He literally said it back to me. Ribbit, ribbit, I look like frog. And then he got out of his car and came at me. And I had, like, pictures of him coming at me <laughs> to use in court because I knew this was going to turn into a fight. And um, so it did. It did. He came at me. And it's, I have the pictures. And it's like, ah, ah. And he's grabbing for the camera to destroy it. And um, I had a laptop and a camera, so I had no hands to use. And um, he punched me. And, um, and then, oh, yeah, he punched me. So I put the uh, camera in my uh, back pocket, and I, pun I punched him back. And I'd never punched a landlord before. That feels good, <laughs> especially when they asked for it, like, like striking first. And, um, but he's like, you know, he was like 55, so this is not a fair fight but i had one hand and he was like i take everything from you and like i held him like like dark helmet in space balls i held him by his head away from me and he was like grabbing at me and um and then i i just wanted him to stop and let me leave so i uh i grabbed his glasses and i go i have your glasses I was like, I have your glasses, you guys, we stop. I have your glasses. And then he thinks for a second, and it's this weird standoff. And then he grabs my glasses and he goes, now I have your glasses, now what? Wait, no, neither one of us had an answer. Now what? <laughs> he had to cooperate on how to fight and um, so he threw my glasses in the street and I threw his glasses in the street and then we both like maneuvered to pick them up. And then I left and he's like, I'm calling police and I'm getting $100,000 from you. And that never happened. I think they thought better of it when I, I told him that I had pictures of him coming at me. And um, I moved out and made up with most of those wonderful roommates I lived with. We hang out sometimes. I do live alone now. Um, I've avoided having roommates since then as much as possible. I live alone in a wonderful uh, uh, apartment in Los Feliz. However, recently, and I'm not making this part up, uh, a week and a half ago, I got an email from one of the guys I used to live with. And this is five years ago we moved out. Um, 
we all got an email, like this old like nightmare email thread that we used to all have to shit on each other. And there was another email like, hey guys, about that DWC bill from 2010, and it's still the same $3,000 DWP bill, and apparently I'm just going to pay it down in installments because no one else is going to pitch in. It's like the house that reaches up from hell and keeps grabbing money from me years later. But, you know, some, I guess the lesson is um, you might live with uh, people that you think are going to be great and then disappoint you, but if you move fast on your feet, you can defeat a frogman. Thank you. That's all for this week's episode, folks. This is Mike Ferris behind me now. And don't forget that on February 6th, Risk is in Chapel Hill Carborough at DSI Theater. Come out and see us. That's going to be a fantastic show. And on the 26th, yeah, on the 26th of February, Risk is in New York and Los Angeles. In New York, we're always at the pit. And in L.A., we're always at the Nerd Melt showroom. Or the Nerdist showroom. Gee, they just changed the name and it drives me fucking crazy. Because I got into the habit of saying it the other way. It's at the Nerdist showroom. Don't forget that we teach this stuff as well at thestorystudio.org. We do one-on-one training over Skype. We have workshops in New York and in Los Angeles. Those are in-person workshops. And uh, we also do corporate workshops. So check it all out at thestorystudio.org. Risk is a proud and happy member of the Maximum Fun network of podcasts, and we are listener-supported, like all other Max Fun shows. So if you like what we do, go to maximumfun.org slash donate and make a one-time contribution or become a member and be sure to earmark your contribution for risk. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk.
ribbit, ribbit. Watch it, flipper face.